Welcome to the Power Podcast and our 2020 theme, Power Perspective. I'm Malia Warner. This is episode 72, Lies of the Magpie Bonus, chapters 18 and 19. Hi, friend, and welcome. I am so glad you are here today. Have I got news for you? This has been an amazing weekend. On Friday, the Kindle version of Lies of the Magpie launched on Amazon. This has been a long, long, long day coming. I can't even express in brief words the many, many, many lonely writing sessions fighting with words and self-doubt to get to this point. That is celebration right there, to be done, to be finished to a point and putting it out into the world. Then by Friday night, I'm in the middle of doing laundry and find out that Lies of the Magpie is a number one bestseller on Amazon. Mind blown. Thank you, everyone who has purchased the Kindle version and shared this journey with me. I love you so much. Especially, I know there were some of you that were really waiting for the print version, that preferred the print version over the Kindle copy. So I could not have been more surprised and excited than when Saturday, Amazon delivered my print proofs earlier than expected. And let me paint the picture for you of where I was and what I was doing when I saw the very first printed copy of my very first published book. We had left early that morning. We did a seven mile hike. It was my husband's birthday and that's what he wanted for his birthday was a family hike. We came home hot, sweaty, dusty, too dirty to be in the house. So we ate sandwiches outside and ended up having this massive family water fight. And I can't even tell you how many buckets of water I had dumped over my head. So because I was already sweaty and dusty and dirty and wet and needed a shower, I decided that would be a good time to get the weeds out of the garden. So I started weeding the garden and I had my hands all dirty And my husband, who will forevermore share his birthday with my book birthday, which is just so apropos to his support and role that he's played in all of this process, he comes to the garden carrying a box. And it looks like just the perfect size box to hold three sample copies of Lies of the Magpie. And I, my heart just leaps and I'm going, is this my book? So I don't even go inside or wash my hands or anything. I just opened the box and there it was, my book in printed form, which somehow just makes it even all the more real to have it out of a computer file and be able to hold it in my hands and flip pages and smell the newness of the book and see it all come together and have this realization, oh my goodness, this is a book and it's a real book and it looks great. And yes, my printed sample copy has my grimy, muddy fingerprints all over the front cover, which is okay because it has a big old ugly 
bar across the front that says not for resale, proof copy. That will just always be my copy for me with my muddy, grubby fingerprints all over the front cover. And what does this mean for you? I have been through that sample cover. I've checked all the page numbers and the formatting and all the chapters are there and nothing is missing and there are no duplicate pages and everything lined up and looks great. And I approve the copy, which means, drum roll, that I have a release date for the paperback version of Lies of the Magpie. Ladies and gentlemen, Lies of the Magpie paperback version will be available on Amazon. Wait for it. This Friday, June 5th. Can I get a hallelujah? Woo! I'm here all alone in my basement recording room, so I'm just going to pretend that I can hear all of you cheering enthusiastically. Thank you for allowing me to share some exciting news with you today. I know there are a lot of times in life when we don't get great news. We've had a lot of times in our family where it just feels like we keep getting not great news after not great news, at least news you don't feel like celebrating. So it feels good. Thanks for being here to help celebrate some good news with me. So today in celebration of the Amazon Kindle release and bestseller ranking, in addition to the announcement of the paperback release, I wanted to give you some bonus chapters from the audio version of Lies of the Magpie. Obviously, creating the audio version of the book is a little bit more of a production and takes some time. But I know a lot of you were listening to the podcast last summer, summer of 2019, when I first began releasing chapters of Lies of the Magpie. And we did, we didn't quite finish part one of the book. We did chapters one to 11. And those chapters have changed completely. So what you heard, well, not completely, but they have changed quite quite a bit, the order and the content. Some things are deleted, some things are added. So what you heard last summer is not the same as what is in the final version of the book. So for today, I thought I would jump ahead to some chapters from part two, because I'm not going to spoil what happens on that long drive to Tucson. You'll have to read that for yourself on your own Kindle copy or on your own upcoming paperback copy. Today's chapters will jump ahead to chapters 18 and 19, which are close to the beginning of part two. Baby Jack has joined our family in a crazy way. In these chapters, he is two weeks old, and without even being able to take a breath, the Warner family is spinning on a merry-go-round of chaos, and these chapters pull you right into the hustle and bustle. And as a reader, you can see into the heart and mind of a woman who has just given birth and how she's feeling about the expectations and responsibilities and the inadequacy that she feels with everything required to care for a newborn, as well as all of the other family needs to be met. So without further ado, I present to you Lies of the Magpie chapters 18 and 19. Chapter 18. In 1917, the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company purchased 16,000 acres of land in south-central Arizona. The company had made two discoveries. 
One, that adding cotton extended the life and wear of tires. Two, that central Arizona, with its Egypt-like climate, was an excellent place to grow cotton. Thus, the city of Goodyear, Arizona was born. After six months selling ads to nearly every business in the Goodyear area, I'm getting familiar with its layout and history. The tire company built guest houses to host visiting executives, and those guest houses grew into what became a five-star resort called the Wigwam. This summer, Aaron's company is hosting the annual Cloverman Family Retreat at the Wigwam Resort. Jack is two weeks and one day old, buckled into his car seat with the shade visor pulled over to protect his delicate new skin. His chin droops on his chest, his knees tuck up to his belly. He still defaults to fetal position, making him look like a head of cabbage. He's parked next to the back tire while I stuff luggage under the minivan's raised back door. Swimsuits, sunscreen, life preservers, inflatable inner tubes, water sandals, sun hats, snacks, dinner outfits, plus the endless catalog of baby paraphernalia. We're only going for three days and we're packed floor to roof. After driving 30 minutes, Aaron unlocks the door to our cottage. Kate, Danny, and Tanner race into the room, find their swimsuits, and beg to go swimming. The company family retreat has begun. Aaron leaves for his opening meetings. I chase the kids to the pool, awkwardly holding Jack's carrier to my chest, the heavy shoulder bag bouncing as I run. Mostly, I am praying to be able to keep track of all four of them by the water. Positioning Jack under an umbrella and arranging our towels on pool chairs has me worked into a sweat. My breast milk virtually evaporates into the arid June sky. Just then, Laia sneaks up behind me. She's arranged her schedule to spend the afternoon at the pool with us. Get a gander at all the peacocks strutting their newest developments. Laia draws my attention to the other Cloverman wives setting up around the pool. This year, I have a rack to rival the most surgically enhanced, but considering the general sag, jiggle, and pasty whiteness of everything from my chest down, the only sashaying I do will be between this chair and the restroom to change my pads. Otherwise, I plan to sit in this corner wearing my black swim cover-up. Check out Veronica. Laia lets out a low whistle. Across the way, Veronica is setting up a shade tent looking flawless. She is beautifully tan and wearing, of all things, a white bikini, the exact color of my skin. Doesn't Veronica have four kids same as you? Laia asks. You can't tell by looking at her. Remember last year when we visited her new house? Of course I remember. Veronica had opened the door wearing an apron over an outfit that could have come straight off a New York runway. She was in the middle of baking homemade pies. She amicably stopped her work and escorted us through a tour, showing the window treatments she had sewn herself. I found the fabric on clearance. It saved us thousands of dollars, she'd told us. Pulling out a measuring stick and comparing the two of us, I came out much shorter. My inferiority complex is interrupted by Kate's yell from across the pool. Tanner has flipped face forward in his swim tube and is splashing and gurgling, unable to right himself. Without thinking about not getting my stitches wet, I jump into the water, run swim across the pool, and lift Tanner's face out of the water. He coughs and starts to cry. My heart thumps in my ears. How did I allow myself to get distracted and nearly lose my son? I pull him to my chest and rub his head, then lift him to the side of the pool to dry him off. As I heft myself up out of the water, my episiotomy pops. Skin opens. All the commotion wakes Jack, whose cries cause my milk to let down. 
Thankfully, I'm already wet, so the circles of milk aren't too noticeable through my swimsuit. All the immaculate women are watching us. Kate is crying, Tanner is crying, Jack is crying. I am springing leaks and trying not to cry. The threads holding me together are coming unstitched. I am falling apart at the seams. As the retreat progresses, the lines at the buffets grow shorter. At each meal, we make note of who's missing. Whispers through the food line speculate about hotel food poisoning or an uber-contagious stomach flu. By the third day of the company retreat, anyone who hasn't already vomited is cautiously waiting to see who it strikes next. We make it to Saturday unscathed. While Aaron delivers our three amigos to kids' camp, I dress for the final awards banquet. No one here with Cloverman knows yet, but this is our last summer retreat and awards banquet. Come Monday, Aaron will officially resign as a financial advisor to come home and join me full-time on our printing business. This year, we aren't worried about making impressions, which is good because the only formal attire my mega-boobs fit into is an old sweater with a few sparkling sequins. Aaron returns to our room and tells me I look beautiful. At dinner, Aaron and I clink glasses with our table companions and toast to a great year at Cloverman. Under the table, we take turn rocking Jack's carrier with our toes to keep him sleeping. Twelve months have ticked past since last year's banquet. We have a business and a baby. Both were so unpredictable and already so obviously normal, it's hard to imagine that neither existed a brief year ago. How can life be so extraordinary and mundane at once? After the award presentations, Aaron and I pick up our troops from kids' camp. Wired on sugar and lack of sleep, they jump from one hotel bed to the other. Should we pack up and go home to our own beds? Aaron asks, surveying the scene. It'll take longer to get them settled down to sleep than it will for us to drive back home. If somebody starts puking tonight, I'd rather be home with my own washing machine, I answer. Monday morning, Aaron kisses me goodbye and leaves to clean out his office and tie up any loose ends for his last day of work. Meanwhile, in the laundry room, four heaping piles of laundry wait to be washed, dried, folded, and repacked into the same suitcases so we can leave for Utah tomorrow. I strip our bed sheets and add them to the rest of the wash. Laya's always had this thing about never leaving home with dirty sheets on the beds, and it's spread to me. What if the house caught fire and the firefighters rushed in and could smell stale sheets over the stench of smoke, she'd say. Tomorrow, I'll wash the kids' sheets before we leave. In the pre-dawn hours early Tuesday morning, Danny mopes into our bedroom. Mom, I don't feel good. His face is pale with a hint of green. He hiccups. The moment I see his stomach muscles contract, I dive roll into Aaron as Danny heaves forward, depositing a pile of brown puke exactly where I'd been lying. That's slow-reacting food poisoning. Aaron looks over at me at the stinking mass. That or it's stomach flu. I think they're allergic to the laundry detergent. I scoot closer to Aaron. Why? Because they only throw up on freshly washed sheets. The sheets on Danny's own bed are dirty, but he had made it all the way into our bedroom to throw up all over the only clean sheets in the house. We both roll out of Aaron's side of the bed, Aaron fetches the barf bowl for Danny and tucks him back to bed while I strip our sheets for the second day in a row. Tanner vomits next, followed by Kate, so we postpone our departure a couple of days. 
Instead of arriving in Utah with time to get settled and recuperate from our 10-hour drive, we will pull into town the night before Aaron's brother's wedding and hope we don't spread flu germs to the bride and groom. Chapter 19 Late Friday night, I'm awake rocking a fussy jack in the downstairs of Aaron's childhood home. Between the dark hours of midnight and pre-dawn, my bare feet wear the pattern of Walt steps into the old shag carpet. Poor Jack. He's overstimulated after being passed to so many unfamiliar arms during the wedding celebrations. The combination of his empty stomach and strange surroundings result in an inconsolable baby who cries the moment I try to lay him down. We become acquainted with midnight shadows cast through the basement window. The wedding day ended with a spectacular demonstration from Tanner, who had discovered that reception ennui could be averted by throwing Rice Krispie balls into the chocolate fountain in the same way a boring day of fishing is fixed by throwing rocks into the water. His flailing arms spewed splatters of chocolate onto the white linens as I pulled him away from the refreshment table, igniting a no-afternoon-nap-meltdown tantrum, showcasing a spectacle of body-writhing, kicking, screaming, and hair-pulling, mine and his, to rival the most brutal exorcism. Somehow, the bride escaped without brown chocolate spots on her white gown. A nauseous stomach also keeps me awake. Hard to know whether it's the Cloverman Retreat stomach flu or the 10-hour drive followed by too much wedding dessert. But several times, the gut rumbling sends me running to the bathroom where I must set Jack on the cold linoleum in order to lean over the porcelain bowl. Thus, I pass the night pacing the hallway, bouncing Jack against my chest and cradling his head into my shoulder to soothe and also muffle the volume so his crying won't wake my in-laws. Thankfully, I never throw up. This is the good news. Nobody wants to finish their birthday by vomiting into a toilet. I turned 31 years old today. Somehow, Aaron managed to stop by a grocery store and bring a surprise store-bought birthday cake to the wedding luncheon, which, if you think about it, was a waste of money since there was already dessert provided by the caterers. In the midst of a bustling day, Helen also remembered my birthday and gave me a card. Sometime later, I hear the ruckus of the Danny-Kate Tanner trio upstairs. At last, I've fallen asleep on the family room couch, Jack sleeping curled on my chest. The adults in the house want to sleep late after a long day of wedding festivities, but my kids bounce awake at 6.30 a.m. no matter how late they went to bed. They sound like a herd of elephants running through the kitchen, dumping out Grandma's toys and raiding her cereal closet. I should bring them downstairs so they don't wake Helen and Grant, but Jack is sleeping. My eyes close as I drift back to sleep, listening to the sound of Helen's voice asking the trio what they want for breakfast. It's late when I slide Jack onto the couch and go to the bathroom to splash cold water over my eyes, blink out the redness, and carry Jack upstairs. Before entering the living room, I tilt my chin up and put on a smile. Good morning, everybody! Helen moves out of her recliner. Sit down here. She pats the cushion for me, then takes a seat on the floor. We're going to hike up Payson Canyon. How long until you can be ready? Aaron's words highlight the fact that I'm the only person in the room still wearing pajamas. Hiking? I could barely walk up the stairs. Go ahead, I'll stay here. Under the blanket, I lift my shirt and help Jack latch on. Aaron looks crushed. Why? Why? 
The room waits for me to answer, but my brain struggles to formulate a coherent response. Saying, I'm tired is no good. Everybody is tired after yesterday. I wish I could be more organized and on top of everything as other women are. I wish I could bound out of bed ready to spend the day on a grand hiking adventure. But today is Saturday and there's something pressing I need to do. Through my grogginess, I can't come up with it. My brain is swimming in letters like alphabet soup, but I can't turn the stew into words. In the end, the only word I find is a word that means everything and nothing. Because the word doesn't satisfy. I'll carry Jack for you. Aaron knows he has the solution to fix this problem. He was so fussy last night. I think he just needs to stay in one place today. I'll stay home and watch him while you go. Now Helen has the fix. Please come, please come. Danny and Kate sing in chorus. In the pause, I'm taken back to the hospital the day Jack was born. The yearning to be at Danny's graduation. The desire to divide myself into more than one person. Everyone is looking at me. I can't. Why? Aaron questions again. Don't you want to go? Grant asks. I'll help with the kids. There's nothing to do but shake my head. They pack water, snacks, and sunscreen and ask three more times, if I'm sure, before leaving me sitting in the front room questioning if I made the right decision. Rather than going back downstairs to rest while the house is quiet, I sit on the couch, awkwardly glancing at why. I hate that Aaron invited why here this morning, a demanding house guest, and left me alone to entertain him. Y hovers in the room looking at the family photos on the mantel, drawing fingerprints in the dust on the fireplace, scrutinizing me over his double monocles. He pinches both pant legs, hiking the trousers above sock level before lowering himself onto the far end of the couch. <laughs> he torts while polishing his lenses. I tell myself to ignore Y, but he is so curious, so interesting. There's much he could reveal to me. Why wasn't I able to go hiking with my family? Why aren't I capable of doing everything that everyone thinks I should be able to do? Why am I weaker than other women? I examine why for clues while thinking about all the days backward. The hike, the wedding, the 10-hour drive, the puke-soiled bedsheets, the company family retreat, my mom's and sister's visit, Jack's birth, why doesn't Aaron realize it's all been too much? Why wouldn't he tell me to stay home and rest? Why doesn't he see how exhausted I am? Why did my in-laws think I should be able to go hiking the day after a big wedding, which was the day after a long car drive, which was barely three weeks after giving birth to their grandson? And before that was the music conference, the long drive to Tucson, before that was the June magazine deadline, the months of door-to-door -door selling, piano lessons, seminary, cleaning out the family house. I think all the way back to that night when Aaron left me sitting alone at the awards banquet table. Why is it never enough? I shout out loud. I want to cry, a deep cleansing cry while the house is mine alone. I want to sob hard, washing away the why until I am purged. But tears don't come on demand. Why presses his hands to his knees, raises himself with importance, and exits the front door without asking to be excused. 
What poor manners. He robbed the peaceful hours of my morning and gave nothing in return. He may answer to his name, but he doesn't have answers to his name. I'm left alone sitting on the couch. Jack has long since fallen back to sleep. In the quiet, the nagging feeling of an unremembered task resurfaces. What is it I needed to do today? A sound outside calls my attention. Knock, knock, hello! Lia breezes in. She's in town for something important, but at this moment I can't recall exactly what. I can only stay a minute. She takes wise place on the couch and looks around, noticing the quiet. Where is everybody? They went hiking. Please don't ask me why I didn't go. Just tell me why I'm not as strong as people think I should be. Helen fed my kids breakfast this morning. I'm a horrible mother. It's barely 9 a.m. on a Saturday morning and Laya is dressed for business, giving the impression she's already completed a number of significant accomplishments for the day. After Kate was born, I'd asked her if there were mothering judges or a mothering report card. How else does a woman know if she's succeeding in mothering? I need a way to know if I'm doing this right. Laya could be my guide. She works as a consultant or a coach. I don't understand her work exactly. She's successful, organized, put together, a dynamo. All the things I'm not. Now that she's living close by, would she do it? Will she help me organize my life? Will she show me where I'm falling short and tell me how to fix it? Will she help me be successful? Yes, Laya nods. I'll do whatever you want. I'm here for you. I've seen the personal evaluation form she carries around where her clients can self-assess their competence in areas like timeliness, organization, reliability, and preparedness. I need her to point out where I'm falling short and tell me how to fix it. I need her to coach me on how to be successful. First, tell me where I went wrong this morning. How did I let so many people down? Did you sleep late? Laya and I have had a thing since college about not wasting life by sleeping in. Early to bed, early to rise, the little bird who wakes up early is healthy, wealthy, and gets the fattest worm or something like that. Yes, I slept late. I heard the kids awake, then I let myself fall back to sleep. Helen had a wedding yesterday and is probably even more exhausted than you are. Here's the thing. Life is hard. Everybody gets tired. You have to be stronger than your body and force yourself to get up and get moving. Laya is right. If I'd gotten up the first time I'd heard the kids wake, I could have fed them breakfast, like a good mother would do, and been dressed and ready to go on the hike. No person ever achieved success by keeping company with their pillow. Did Laya hear that from a philosopher, a self-help guru, or did she make that up? The back screen door slams, letting in a cacophony of voices and announcing the triumphal return of the hiking expedition. The conquering heroes regale tales of snake catching and wading under the waterfall. Their sun-kissed faces are luminous with the excitement of adventure. They crawl their gangly bodies onto my lap, wrap their rangy appendages around my neck, and show me pictures from Aaron's camera of mountain cows and meadow flowers. I can feel their heartbeats pulsing warm and alive in their necks. You're cold, Kate tells me and retracts from my embrace. She asks why I'm still wearing pajamas, why I'm still sitting in the same place I was when they left. 
Kate plays with my hand while she talks about racing sticks down the river and asks why the veins on my wrist are blue and flat. She doesn't expect me to answer, which I don't. Not out loud. My veins are empty, I think. No lifeblood there. My morning has been an utter waste. First sleeping late, then squandering precious time bickering with why. Their outing had been fantastic, and while they have memories and sunburns, I have regret. Three hours of hiking would have been a cinch compared to my morning wrestling with guilt. I should have gone. I made the wrong decision. For the rest of the summer, I vow to myself I will participate in anything and everything my family wants to do. Helen interrupts my thoughts. What can I do to help for tomorrow? What's tomorrow? Seconds tick off in my brain to the backdrop of quiz show music before the answer to my nagging feeling finally surfaces. Tomorrow is Sunday. It's Jack's Blessing Day. This is Malia Warner. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for listening to these bonus chapters of Lies of the Magpie. If you just can't wait to hear the rest of the story, you can go right now. Click on Amazon, type in Lies of the Magpie. For $10, you can purchase the Kindle version and read right now how the story ends. If you're feeling a little more patient, you can wait until Friday, June 5th, when you can order your very own paperback copy. And if you just can't get enough, well, great news. There's no limit. You can get both. You can be the proud owner of the Kindle version and the lucky owner of a paperback version. And then later down the road, you could also own a hardback version and an audio version. You could have the complete Lies of the Magpie collection. Imagine that, oh, you lucky soul. In any case, Thank you for being here today. As always, this is Malia Warner. I will meet you back here next week for another great episode of The Power Podcast. Until then, be well, my friends. Bye-bye.